Lord, we thank you for the privilege of having your word. Lord, the great privilege of, of allowing it, Lord, to shape us and to fashion us. But Lord, you ask for us to be humble under your word. So Lord, give us hearts that are teachable. Give us hearts, Lord, that are seeking to be moldable, to be conformed to your image. Give us insight, Lord, into the struggles that we face and the way that you are teaching us, Lord, to confront those struggles. But Lord, may we ultimately see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, your Son, as we open up your word. I just ask, Lord, as your messenger, that you would accomplish your purposes through, uh, through me this morning to your people. For your glory, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, this, uh, today we, we begin, in a sense, a new chapter in the book of Philippians. And I, I mean that in the sense of, uh, for the most part, what we've seen so far in the book of Philippians um, is the, the nature of gospel partnership. But today, as we move into chapter 3, we're moving beyond the nature of it into actually the, 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 the ongoing struggle in pursuing that gospel partnership for the glory of the Lord. And that will be our intent. And although it's only 11 verses, quite frankly, there's a lot of verses in here that could be sermons in and of themselves, rightfully so. But we, we need to see the big picture here to understand Paul's argument and why he's saying what he's saying. And so this morning, we want to see uh, verses 1 through 11 as a unit. Now, a number of years ago, while I was between ministries, um, I had to look for work. And for some reason, at that point in time, it was really hard to find work during that time. But I was able to find a job at FedEx. And um, I remember, you know, being assigned all these different things, you know, my uniform and all that kind of stuff. And, and, but before I could actually get into the, the warehouse and actually uh, be a part of the ongoing activity um, in the warehouse, uh, we had to gather together for three days where we had to listen to lectures from the health and safety department, right? These are the kinds of boots you should wear. Um, this is how to pick up a box, which is something I've learned and used very much since my time at FedEx. This is considered hazardous materials. This is how you handle them, right? This is how you walk on a floor made of rollers, because they had these big containers that they would roll all over the place, and you had to walk on them. This is how to flush your eyes out if there's any need, all these things are really, really important. See, they were saying, we're glad that you're here to work at FedEx, but we also want you to be safe. We don't want any injuries, any accidents, or even death. And what Paul says here at the beginning of Philippians 3 is in one sense, this whole passage is a health and safety orientation of sorts. Let's just read verse 1. He says, finally, brothers. Now, this is not like this is the last word I'm going to say. This is kind of like, now I've, I've said what I need to say, laying a foundation. Now I want to get into some stuff I really want to talk about. That's the idea behind this. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Well, that's a good thing. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is what? Safe for you. So Paul has two concerns. Concern number one, that the Philippian church would rejoice in the Lord. Concern number two, that they are safe. 
And it appears by the wording here that where Paul says to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, is he's saying, I've already said these things to you, but I'm going to say them again. Why? Because I want you to be safe. I want you to rejoice in the Lord, and I want you to be safe. So this word of reminder is for their own safety. So what Paul is calling us to, to do this morning is to rejoice in the Lord and be safe. Now, what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? All of us know someone who's like a Christian tigger. You know what I'm talking about from Winnie the Pooh? They're always happy and bubbly and, you know, the wonderful things about Christians, the Christians are wonderful things, right? They're, they're that kind of person that's always positive, always, you know, joyful, always kind of exuberant. But that isn't what rejoicing in the Lord is about. If I said to you right now, rejoice, what would you do? Some of you would start clapping. Some of you would start dancing and rejoicing. Some of you would hoot and holler, just like, you know, after Steph Curry gets that buzzer beater. Woohoo, yay! In our minds, that's what rejoicing is all about. We can all rejoice. That is the activity. But the real question is what is the basis or the foundation? of your rejoicing. And sometimes I wonder whether we are rejoicing without rejoicing in the Lord. And Paul is saying, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. Now the picture that I, I came up with, I know it's kind of weird, and my mind is weird, it goes in these places, and it kind of lets you know of my upbringing but the picture that came to my mind when, when I was thinking about this rejoicing in the Lord was of Scrooge McDuck sitting on his pile of golden coins, enjoying his treasure, but without the, the miserliness or the, or the greed. But he's enjoying what he has. Now, just I hope you understand what it is I'm trying to convey here. When we come to faith in Christ, we are blessed with all kinds of spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. And to rejoice in the Lord is to find full and complete satisfaction in everything that Christ is, in everything that Christ has done and everything that Christ is yet to do on our behalf. It is placing our confidence fully and completely in Christ and in Him alone. So, when you reflect on your own sinfulness and the fact that it is paid for you by Christ's sacrifice, you rejoice in the Lord. When you ponder over God's sovereignty over, your, over His creation in general and your life in particular, you rejoice in the Lord. When you realize that you are a new creature created in Christ Jesus, you rejoice in the Lord. When you're hopeful because he has gone to prepare a place for you in heaven, you rejoice in the Lord. It is Christ that is the basis of our joy. And friends, rejoicing in the Lord is not some kind of Christian happy face that we put on when we're around people. It is the heart orientation that we have before Christ because of what he has done and what he is doing for us. It's a heart that is in awe 
of his kindness, in awe of his generosity, in awe of his grace and love toward us. Rejoicing in the Lord is response of treasuring Christ. But there's always a danger lurking, friends. There's always a danger. Sin is always crouching at the door. And what we have in Christ is always in danger. And that's why Paul is saying, rejoice in the Lord. And I'm saying these things because I want you to be safe. So to summarize what Paul is saying here, and what he's laying out for us here, Paul is saying, the safekeeping of our rejoicing in the Lord is found when we reject putting our confidence in the flesh and embrace the value of knowing Christ. Let me say that again. The safekeeping of our rejoicing in the Lord is found when we reject putting our confidence in the flesh and embrace the value of knowing Christ. Now, let's jump in here and begin to think about this because this is a very important topic for each of us here today. Because we're all in danger. It may be a danger that we don't see is present, but it's there. It may be a danger that is subtly entered into our hearts and is shaping our view of Christianity and the world around us, but we can't see it. It's a danger that God's one true church has had to battle with since Christ died on the cross. So we would do well to pay attention to what the Apostle Paul is saying to us. It seems like recently we've been using a lot of flying illustrations, and I want to use another one here. You know, when we get on an airplane and you start to taxi out and the flight attendants try and get your attention, they want to go over some safety protocols for the plane. And you have some options. You have a choice. You can listen to their advice about the safety protocols, and in particular how they apply to this specific plane. You can pretend to listen, which is, I think, what most people do, but tune out because you've heard it all before. Or you can just simply ignore it as if you don't need it. And friends, I want to encourage you to listen and to heed Paul's words here, his warning, as well as his counsel for your heart. Now, just thinking about the structure of this passage, you really begin in verse 1 with an introduction which is what we looked at, rejoice in the Lord and be safe. Then he gives really emphasis on putting confidence in the flesh, and then secondly, putting confidence in Christ, verses 2 through 7, then 8 through 9, and then finally there is this conclusion. And quite frankly, he's driving to the conclusion. He's driving to verse 10. Now let's heed Paul's warning. Number one, beware the danger of valuing the flesh. Beware the danger of valuing the flesh. Now, what does that mean? What is, what is Paul saying when he's talking about the flesh? Is he talking about you know, my physical flesh here? And that is not what he's talking about. The flesh represents man's fallen, unredeemed humanness. It pictures human, human ability apart from God. The flesh is any kind of human effort to gain righteousness before God that is void 
of the Holy Spirit and glorying in Christ. We will see this fleshed out further described in our passage. In particular, verse 2 gives us clarification for that. I should say verse 3 gives us clarification for that because it describes those who are true followers of Christ as those who depend on the Holy Spirit and are glorying in Christ. By the way, I don't know if you, you catch this as we were going through this passage today. You're going you're gonna to be reminded of all the songs that were sung this morning. <laughs> They're all interacting and interweaving with Philippians chapter 3. This is like a, a classic passage of Scripture. And here we have, right, glorying in Christ, depending on the Holy Spirit. But I want you to notice the warning in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. There's a constant pressure from false teachers out there. On one level, I'm amazed at the kind of false teaching that is out there and the fact that it's being promoted by false teachers. And I'm also amazed as to how many people defend these false teachers using this kind of argument. Well, who made you judge and jury? You ever heard that one before? What gives you the right to discredit men about what they teach. Aren't you being arrogant and judgmental, thinking that you are in the right? But friends, Paul confronts false teaching. Jesus confronted false teaching. The apostles continually warn about false teaching, and they tell pastors to warn their flocks about false teaching and false teachers. They name names in their context. How we go about it and how we say it might be a question, but careful pastors will call out false teachers and false teaching to safeguard the flock. That's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, look out. He's not saying, well, you know, if you just happen to run into this guy. No, he's putting up a warning. He's saying, be careful. We must always be careful how we go about alerting the flock to false teachers and their teaching. And we must also make a distinction between what is called heresy and what is considered wrong theology. Let me just explain that briefly here. Heresy is a belief or theology that denies or undermines the essential aspects of the person and the work of Christ, ultimately the gospel. So, for example... If you teach that we're all little gods, that's heresy, because it undermines the gospel. If you teach that Jesus is only a man elevated to the position of prophet, that's heresy, because it denies the true nature of Christ. If you teach that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer and Elohim is his father, that's heresy, because it is a complete distortion of what is revealed in God's Word. If you teach that Jesus simply came to model for us how good people live and are willing to die for others, but his death on the cross had really no saving purpose, that's heresy because it denies the effectual work of what happened on the cross. 
But if you teach that the Lord will return before or after the millennium, or that there isn't even a millennium, at least two of those options are going to be wrong theology. If you teach that communion should be taken by all who profess Christ, we talk open communion, or only those who are baptized can take it, or only those who are members of your church can take it, well, not everyone is wrong necessarily, but someone's wrong in there. But good people, godly people, people who want to be true with the word of God and honor the Lord will disagree on some of those things. But that's not heresy. Heresy is when we lift some bad theology to the level of of correcting the nature of Christ, correcting the nature of the gospel. Now what Paul is dealing with here is not wrong theology. What he's dealing with here is heresy that was creeping into the church by those who called themselves Christians but advocated a different gospel. They taught that in order to be a true Christian, you must not only believe in Christ, you must also follow the teachings of Moses. Special days, celebrations, the laws, but in particular, the rite of circumcision. And friends, that is why Paul, what Paul says next is very strong language. Notice what he says, verse 2. He says, first of all, look out for dogs. You call someone a dog today, that's a fight waiting to happen. But Paul's trying to convey something here. Just like dogs roam the streets seeking something to eat, so false teachers roam about and infiltrate churches to spread their teachings. Just as dogs can be sly and cunning to get what they want, so false teachers can be the same way. And just as dogs can be a danger to those who encounter them, so false teachers represent spiritual danger among their hearers. Now, most of us, when we think about dogs, we think about Foofy that lives in our house, that we pamper, that we take to the vet, and we provide you know, this nutritious food that you get online in, in you know, some kind of a, a systematic way. Back in Paul's day, Foofy didn't live in your house. Foofy ran around town with all the other dogs infiltrating. The idea of having a pet in that kind of context wasn't a reality. Dogs were filthy. Dogs were things that you avoided. So he says, look out for dogs. Secondly, look out for evildoers. The message that these false teachers are spreading is an evil doctrine. Paul is likely speaking here about the Judaizers who were diligently spreading their distorted teaching. They were not lazy in their work, but diligent to advocate a salvation of Jesus and good works. Have you ever noticed when you go into a city somewhere, there are Jehovah's Witnesses all over the place? Have you ever noticed that? You've been around the world and you, know, you come out of a subway, boom, there's a Jehovah's Witness standing with a placard. Man, they are diligent. Now they've, they don't say anything unless you engage them. But I mean, if you can say something about them, it's like they are working hard. And that should challenge us to say, what are we doing? 
And anytime you add a work to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it becomes an evil teaching. Good plus error doesn't somehow merge together and be, you know, become gerer. Right? Truth and error is not truth anymore. It is error. So the work might be a good thing, reading your Bible, church attendance, prayer, visiting shut-ins, giving, preaching and teaching, playing an instrument, all those things that we, we kind of say, these are things that should be the life of the church or what we should be pursuing. All those things are good, but when you add error to it, it undermines their goodness. See, what often happens is that we mistake the root from the fruit when the fruit of our salvation replaces the root of our salvation as the basis of our salvation, we're in serious trouble. What I've just mentioned here, Bible reading, church attendance, and so on, if those are the the fruit of our salvation, those are the things that now we are in Christ, we want to have as part of our walk with Christ. But if we exchange the fruit now as the basis for who we are, and our relationship with Christ, we got things upside down. The root is always Jesus Christ and him crucified. My attempts at self-righteousness exchanged for his righteousness. It's all Christ. So what the Philippian church were encountering was a false form of Christianity that the early church had to face and endure. Jesus plus something gospel. Yes, of course Christ died on the cross for your sins. We agree with that. And you must believe in order to be saved. Yes, we agree with that. But you must also keep the Mosaic Law. (laughs) Now, can't we just agree to disagree on these things? No, not when it comes to the gospel. And this is why it's so important, friends. Look out for dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for mutilators. The Judaizers believed that the circumcision of the flesh was required by the law of Moses, and that it was essential for our salvation. And Paul here rejects and repudiates that teaching, calling it the mutilation. So what what was commanded by God in the Old Testament as a sign is now being described as a mutilation, but it's the same thing that's taking place, but what's happened here? Well, circumcision was never supposed to be the entryway into having a right relationship with Christ or with God. In the Old Testament, it was there to be a sign of what was actually true in your heart. So now that Christ has come, now that the Holy Spirit resides in us, the physical, anything physical done is a mutilation of the body. Why? Because the circumcision has taken place in the heart. Circumcision is always a matter of the heart, a turning away from sin by, truly, by being truly repentant in your heart. But if this internal reality was missing, the outer manifestation or the expression of it amounted to nothing more than mutilating the body. 
So when it comes to a matter of standing before uh, God, holy and clean, circumcision amounts to nothing more than a mutilation of the flesh. It has no spiritual value. But this is what the false teachers were teaching. This is what the dogs were teaching. This is the evil that they were teaching. So, first, look out for false teachers and their teaching. Secondly, because that is not who we are. (laughs) And friends, this is such a critical verse. For we are the circumcision, he says. We are the true circumcision. Why? Because we worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Let's just take each one of those separately. We are those who worship by the Spirit of God. The worship of God is spiritual in nature, friends. It's a matter of the heart. The outward sign of circumcision never saved anyone. It was simply that public identification of what you claim to be as a child of Yahweh. But Israel made up of men who, with the outward sign of circumcision, were often at odds with God, right? We we find that as we read the Old Testament. And we find statements like this. Why do you sacrifice to me when your hearts are far from me? These are all people who were circumcised. Why do you prance around in worship when you don't want to obey my voice? Yeah, but I'm circumcised. The sign was never a guarantee of salvation. It was always the inner working of the Holy Spirit in the follower of Yahweh. Friends, no operation of the flesh can produce true worship of God because we are those who worship by the Spirit of God. Secondly, we are those who glory in Christ. We sang about this morning. Our boast is not in our, on ourselves. For our, accomplice, our, our accomplishments or our right to be received by God. No, our boast is in Jesus Christ and all he's done for us as unworthy sinners. He deserves all the glory and praise. We've done nothing to deserve his salvation. We are simply the recipients of God's sovereign grace. Third, we are those who put no confidence in the flesh. Unlike the evil dog, Judaizers who put confidence in the flesh, the true Christian does not put confidence in the flesh. Now, the question here is this. Confidence for what? Let me kind of read through this. Yeah, put confidence in the flesh. Well, confidence for what? What is Paul driving at? How can the flesh bear fruit in confidence and for what? And Paul will argue that the answer is our righteousness before God. So I'm putting confidence in the flesh so that I can believe that I'm standing before God in right standing. Confidence for gaining Christ, for for gaining salvation, for friendship with Christ, for acceptance because of Christ. When you ask someone why they think they will go to heaven, you might get the following responses. I've been good most of my life. I love people, give generously, serve my fellow man. I go to church. I've read the Bible. And I pray to God. All those statements are confidence in the flesh. I have, I have, I have. 
How about this one? This happened when I was in, in the South and going to college. I heard this one a lot. My father and my sister, my brother, my mother, my grandmother, my uncle, my grandfather, they all were pastors of XYZ Church. And because they're pastors of XYZ Church, somehow that means I get this free reign. You know, they're standing in heaven opening a door for me. Doesn't work that way, friends. That's putting your confidence in the flesh. And Paul says, if you want to play that game, then let's play it. And notice what he says next. Here we have this living testimony of Paul. In verses 4 through 7, he, he takes on the Judaizers by using himself as a living testimony of someone who would put confidence in the flesh. Or I should say who could, but he had in the past. He says in verse 4, let's just read it and then we'll kind of flesh it out. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So friend, if you think you have reason to put confidence in the flesh, step aside, he's saying, because my life and testimony will show that no one has more reason to put confidence in the flesh than me. And he launches now, on with this laundry list of confidence in the flesh checkboxes. And the list divides into two sections, his pedigree and his performance. Look at verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day. And the emphasis there is that he was circumcised, and it was done according to the law. He's an Israelite. Racially, he was pure, a pure-blooded Israelite. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. It's a long story about that, but they were the faithful tribe who supported the throne of David. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's the genuine article. Although grew up in Tarsus, he was truly a Hebrew. That's his pedigree. He didn't have to do anything for this. That's just who he is. When he came out of the womb, this is who he was. It's his pedigree. But then we get into his performance. As to the law, a Pharisee. I kept the law of the Pharisees. This isn't the law necessarily of the Old Testament. This is the law of the Pharisees. They added law on top of law to make sure they wouldn't break the law. And he was faithful to keep that. At least, you know, that was the idea. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He terrorized the church. He was fighting with zeal for Judaism, against those who were a part of the way, Christians. As to righteousness, blameless, not sinless, but he's saying I lived an exemplary life that my peers would look at me and say, you are blameless. See, these are all Paul's personal trophies that made him something in this life. That if he wanted to, he could attempt to put confidence in his flesh. He could, center, he could consider himself having the necessary gain in order to be accepted by God. But friends, what are some of the things that you might be tempted to put confidence in? What are your trophies that you prize in this life? Your church attendance? Okay. Your application of spiritual disciplines, I mean, you're, you're committed to prayer, you're committed to fasting, you read your Bible. How about your, your kindness and generosity? What about your, your life accomplishments? 
your diplomas and your degrees? What about your children and their accomplishments? Oh, it's hard being older and having children and having grandchildren because it's so easy to talk about them. And other people say, well, you know, my, my child or, you know, they, they, they did such and such, and you're just always ready to kind of one-up them, right? That's just kind of a natural thing that, that we have, and we've got to, you know, is, are they our trophies? To some degree, I used to have a trophy that sat in the corner of my office that I was very proud of. This is when our office was on Redwood Road. It's a game ball signed by every player from my high school um, soccer team when we won state championship in Michigan in 1983. It was a great accomplishment. I have fond memories of it. It was a proud moment in my life. But when we moved out of our church offices there on Redwood Road, and we, I, in our home, our kids had left, and so took one of the rooms and made it into an office, that trophy went into a box and is sitting in my garage. It was quite an accomplishment. But you know, those trophies that we have, only mean something to us if we want them to mean something to us. But often that's what we focus in on. And Paul is basically saying, what are your trophies? What are the things that you're putting confidence in to say that when you stand before God, I should let you in? And notice what Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So all these were a list in his life of gain. These were all a laundry list of things that he would say, see, this is good. This shows the kind of person I am. This shows my pedigree. This shows my accomplishments. But he's saying all of that is loss. It's of no value. They amount to no confidence in securing salvation or to knowing Christ. Friends, there is a danger for Christians to put their confidence in the flesh rather than in Christ. And that is why Paul is saying this. He's, he's beginning by saying, I want you to rejoice to the Lord, but in your rejoicing, you need to be safe. And you need to be safe because there is teaching that creeps into the church that wants to move you away from putting confidence in Christ, from treasuring Christ, and putting confidence in your, your own efforts, your own self-efforts to obtain the righteousness that you are seeking. So beware of the danger of valuing the flesh. But secondly, embrace the gain now of valuing Christ. See, Paul, having expressed the very present danger of putting our confidence in the flesh, turns his attention to what matters most. And what matters most is knowing Christ. He wants us to see that there's a surpassing pursuit. And the surpassing pursuit is placing one's confidence in Christ, valuing Christ above everything. So letter A, Christ is worth knowing, is what he says here. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He, he expands his argument. He says, look, I, I count my pedigree as lost 
I count my performance as loss, but now he says, I count everything as loss. There's not a thing in this world that is gain. Whatever your passion is, it's not gain. There's only one gain, and that is Christ. There's only one value. There's only one treasure, and that is Christ. Now, he's not saying that you can't have passions in this world. We all have various passions. But is Christ your treasure? He is worth knowing. So that drives us to think about how we live our lives. It drives us to consider what is most important Christ is worth knowing. But secondly, I want you to notice the flesh is worth nothing. For his sake, I have suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now you understand that sometimes translators of the Bible want to sanitize things a little bit. Because this word rubbish doesn't really mean rubbish. It doesn't mean going down to the local dump and, you know, smelling the local dump and, and all that kind of stuff. This word actually means excrement. It's a lovely picture, isn't it? What do we do when we encounter excrement? I can tell you what we don't do. We don't rejoice. We certainly don't value it. We avoid it at all. You go out for a walk with your, with your spouse, and you're you know, like, oh, look out, watch your step. And if our tennis shoes get any of that on our shoes, even if we scrape it off, and we're still thinking, maybe I should just throw them away. You know, we just want to get rid of it. And I'm not trying to be uncouth here, but this is the picture that he's saying here. When we look into the toilet, we don't contemplate the value of what is there. We don't care how the plumbing works, where the pipes go. We just want to be certain that when we press the handle, what is left in the toilet is taken away. It is of no value to us at all. Paul is saying, all of our efforts to impress God with our flesh is like that excrement compared to the value and the worth of knowing Christ. He's making a point here to give us this incredible picture of how our human fleshly pursuits are nothing. That's how Paul views this box of trophies. They have no value. So Christ is worth knowing. The flesh is worth nothing. Let me kind of get back to Christ again. Christ is worth everything. In order, he says, that I may gain Christ. I remember years ago, back when 
all this is years and years ago. Our kids were young. And Toy Story had come out. And the big gift at Christmas was a Buzz Lightyear. And my son wanted a Buzz Lightyear, or maybe I wanted him to have a Buzz Lightyear. You know how that is. And so I'm going out looking for Buzz Lightyears everywhere. I'm looking to find a Buzz Lightyear. Where is it? People are standing in line for Buzz Lightyears. They want a Buzz Lightyear. They are ruled and mastered by this compelling passion to pursue a Buzz Lightyear so that their child can, can rejoice when they open the gift. Paul says, my passion, my pursuit is twofold. It is to, be, it is to gain Christ. It is to be found in Him. That's his concern. The gain of Christ. To be found in Christ. But how? How can that happen? How can he gain Christ? How can he be found in Him? And friends, he goes back again and talks about putting confidence in the flesh, but he uses a a different kind of terminology here. He says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That's putting your confidence in the flesh. When I think of my righteousness as somehow coming from the law, I fulfill these obligations. Look how great I am. I read this many times in Scripture. Look how great I am. I prayed for for 30 minutes. Look how great I am. But you don't know this. God, at 31 minutes... He says, well, if you did 31 minutes, you're good. But 30 minutes, not sufficient. I'm I'm being sarcastic here, right? But this is how our mind thinks. If I do X, Y, Z, God's going to impress me. But you are not declared righteous by any of those human efforts to um, pursue the flesh or find confidence in the flesh. But notice what he says. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It is through the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. That's where my confidence is. It is a matter of faith. It's not a matter of my flesh. Now, friends, I realize that in the context of the church, where we have been in the church for a while, this is probably stuff that you know, that you understand, but this is oftentimes things that we forget to think about. And we start to measure our walk with God and question our walk with God, not based on the truth of Christ, but based on all the other peripheral things that we feel like somehow measures up to our righteousness. And we've forgotten that the reason that we have been declared righteousness is not because of anything that we've done, but everything that he has done. You and I are still sinners, but our sins have been paid for. We didn't do that. He did that. He exchanged his righteousness for our sin. He died in our place when we deserve to be the one being crucified. We are the recipients of that. He's done it all. So Christ is worth everything. But that righteousness here is a righteousness that depends 
on faith, faith in Christ. So now we get to the to the end of this section and into what I'm calling the conclusion. This is really where everything in this text has been building toward. It's a crescendo, so to speak. And he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may, uh, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Just look back at verse 8, if you would, please. Paul said, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul there was saying, it's worth knowing Christ. In fact, we can say that knowing Christ was the overarching and unfolding ambition of Paul's life. A longing for an ever-deepening, ever-widening personal knowledge of the Son of God. But what does it mean to know Christ? Well, to know here isn't talking about head knowledge. It's a knowledge that comes by means of experience. Paul's desire isn't merely theological, but it's experiential. Now, don't, don't think charismatic here. The point here is this, you can affirm a lot of things about Christ, but one must actually have interacted with Christ through the gospel. There must be an experiential component that what has happened to you is that you have been changed by Christ. So Paul's desire here isn't merely theological or experiential, but it it isn't merely identifying truths about Christ, but personally identifying with Christ. The language of this passage won't allow mere head knowledge, will it? Rejoicing, value, loss, gain, knowing. These are all words that describe intimate activities of the heart. So Paul, first of all, wants to know Christ. Paul wants a deepening personal relationship with Christ. He met Christ on the road to Damascus, if you remember, 30 years prior to this. Now, 30 years later, his heart is still beating to know Christ more. I mean, just think about that. The Apostle Paul still wants to know Christ, still wants to experience Christ. We sing about this. It's one of the City of Light songs. I want to know you, Jesus my Lord, King of the heavens, King of my soul. I trade my treasures and all my rewards. Jesus, to know you, what? Then know you more. That's what he's saying. I know you, but I want to know you more. I want to experience you in my life more. And by that, I don't mean warm fuzzies. I mean, you, you, you're spending time with him. You're in the word. You're, you're communing with him. Paul wants to know Christ. Secondly, Paul wants to partner with Christ. We have these two expressions, the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. They kind of go together here. To partner with Christ means that your life, that you live life with his life-giving power day by day. It's this power of the resurrection that is at work day by day in your ongoing sanctification. So it is the power that helps you fight the sin that remains in your heart. If you do it by the flesh, you're going to fall flat on your face. 
If you do it by the power of the resurrection, you're going to make progress. It is what helps you get out of bed when you're discouraged. It's what gives you strength to have that difficult conversation. It's what gives you hope and confidence in this life because you are certain about the life to come. These are all wonderful things that that happen because of the power of the resurrection that's at work in you. But partnership with Christ isn't just about receiving power. It's also about sharing in his sufferings. See, Paul knew that biblical truth, suffering is the lot of every believer. He knew that the world will hate you and persecute you because they hate Christ and want to persecute Christ. If you remember in the book of Acts, in particular um, in, in chapter 14, verse 22, Luke is recording Paul's return to the churches in Asia Minor. And this is, what, this is what he says that Paul was doing, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul's saying, I want to share in that. And this word share is the same word koinonia. It's a partnering word. And Paul is saying to the church, we partner together for ministry, but now he's saying, I want to be partnering together with Christ for whatever he has for me. And that might include suffering. It likely will. So he wants to partner in ministry with Christ day by day and every day. Third, Paul wants to become like Christ becoming like him in his death. Literally, this is saying being conformed to his death. It is a present passive participle. It's something that is happening to Paul. As Paul experiences the power of the resurrection and is strengthened to participate in Christ's suffering, he is being conformed to his death. This is progressive sanctification. These are the things that are happening in him. So Paul's language is describing that that process in which personal crosses produce a series of many resurrections that take place, uh, uh, that, that take Paul deeper into his personal knowledge of Christ. So each day was a new day to take up the cross of Christ and put sin to death. He wants to be like Christ. And fourth, Paul wants to attain the resurrection. You might read that and say, well, wait a second. Didn't Paul already know that being a child of God, he was going to experience the resurrection? Yes. So don't get confused here. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection. Any means, anything that happens to me, any things I have to go through. See, Paul is saying here that there is, that it, this is what he wants. He wants to live his life in such a passionate, Christ-centered way that when he looks back, he would see that each and every day was lived to gain Christ. The resurrection hasn't happened for him yet. So whatever the Lord has for him, right now he's in jail, whatever's before him, he wants to live in such a way that he's attaining that resurrection. And this goes back to the beginning. Rejoice in the Lord, what? And be safe. We don't want anything to derail us from what God has given us in Christ. So friends, this is so important for us because all of us struggle every day to be lured away from treasuring Christ. 
Let me just bring it to a close. I want to bring up the, 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 the further explanation of the proposition. The safekeeping of our rejoicing in the Lord is found when we reject putting our confidence in the flesh and embrace the value of knowing Christ. Let me just give you three, I want to say, things to think about as you walk away from our time together here. Question number one, are you safe in Christ? Or have you drifted? Maybe for you it's time to get back on the tracks. You know, maybe, maybe church for you, maybe being a part of your Christianity has just been kind of going through the motions, pleasing someone else. Maybe you're thinking, you know, I'm good with God because I did this and I did this and I did this. But it's not because of what Christ has done for you. Paul is saying, I want you to be safe. I want you to know what it means to rejoice in the Lord. And those who rejoice in the Lord, they don't put their confidence in the flesh. They put their trust and value in Christ. Friends, what would it be like for you to be a part of Gateway Bible Church for a number of years, professing Christ, but not actually knowing Believing that you're a follower of Christ because you are basing it on the things that you do rather than understanding what Jesus Christ has done. So stop relying on your own effort and start resting in Christ. Secondly, not only are you safe in Christ, but are you treasuring Christ? Or are you treasuring your own trophies? I mean, when you wake up in the morning, are you saying to yourself, Christ, I want to live my life for your glory? Whatever your job might be, you go off to work, you're among pagans, you're, you know, people are there that may hate your Christianity, or maybe you get up and what you have to look forward to is you know, a number of rugrats running around all day and it's chaos and how am I going to make it through? Each of those people can get up in the morning and say, God, the job, the responsibility you've given me, I want to live for your glory today. Are you treasuring Christ? Are you looking for Christ? Are you longing to spend time with Christ? I am one of these people, my wife will attest to this, that every once in a while I will lose something and I go on the hunt. And it's usually in the garage somewhere. And I just, I, I got to find it. I, gotta, I, I can't let it, I got to, I got to, I got to find it. And when I find it, then there's rejoicing. And this is what it means to treasure Christ. I'm just looking for him. I, all, my, all my eggs are in his basket, but I'm longing and I'm waiting and I want to spend time with him. And my pursuit and my thinking is for Christ. Do you take time to consider his worth? Is he gain in your life or is he simply an addition to it? Is he everything? Or is he simply kind of tacked on? He's like a, a sticker on your suitcase. Or are you personally pursuing gain 
Here's the final thing. And I think this is what Paul is ultimately driving to. Do you marinate and rejoice in all that you have in Christ? (laughs) Because see, that's what rejoicing in the Lord is. It isn't necessarily singing. It isn't necessarily clapping. It isn't dancing and all that. Rejoicing in the Lord is, is, is enjoying all that you have in Christ. Look around at, at what you have. If we, if we can continue to see the sinfulness of our sin and that it is paid for and that through Christ I'm no longer in bondage to my sin, but I have the, the wonderful prospect of joy in heaven with him. It changes how I live today. So marinate in him. Let all of the treasures permeate who you are, just spending time in his word and pondering and thinking. And that will bring you to a place of joy and rest and purpose. Friends, rejoice in the Lord and be safe. Lord, help us today. It's a lot in this passage, Lord, for us to continue to think about, to wrestle with, to to squeeze and to, to ponder. But Lord, we want to see you as the greatest treasure. Lord, we want to to hold you up like that diamond ring and just see you in all your majesty and your glory and be in awe of who you are and what you have done. To be encouraged and strengthened by that time to live in such a way that would be for your glory. So Lord, help us as we seek to live our lives to to realize that there is a danger out there and the danger can be subtle and it can even look like the real thing. But Lord, our, our goal, our passion is to gain you and to be found in you, to know you to know your power, to share life with you, even if that means suffering. And whatever things we have to go through, Lord, to to get to that that moment when we are resurrected, either when you come again, or Lord, as we die and are buried and you come and we rise from from the grave, Lord, whatever that might be, the time between now and then, Lord, may we live our lives in such a way that you are our greatest treasure. Help us, Lord, we ask in your name. Amen.